Well, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Uh, as you know, if you've been around, we're working our way through this incredible uh, true story, the first book to follow the four Gospels, which really details the expansion, the extension of the church as the power of the Gospel transforms individuals and families and entire communities. And uh, what we see is, and what we're going to see, of course, today very uh, powerfully is the uh, the ongoing work of the risen Christ. It's not as though this is some history book that was written 2,000 years ago, and then after that, Jesus stopped doing His work. He is continuing to do His work even today. And I said to you in the first week of this study that, you know, the, the title of this book, if you go to the beginning of it, you look at the superscript, it's the Acts of the Apostles, uh, which is not an inspired title, uh, by the way, one that was added much after the book was written. But I said to you then, I think a better title might be the continuing acts of the risen Christ by His Spirit and through His disciples. Jesus is continuing to work by His Spirit and, and through His disciples. We're going to see that uh, today. I guess it was a couple months ago, Janine and I discovered, uh, stumbled upon this series on television called The Jinx. Have you heard of this? Uh, it's about this real estate tycoon, I guess you would say, in New York City. His name is Robert Durst. comes from a, a long line of very wealthy people, and this particular guy, Robert Durst, had been accused of killing his first wife, and then killing his girlfriend after that, and then also killing and, uh, forgive me kids, dismembering uh, his next-door neighbor. So there was a long uh, history there of some uh, gruesome violence. Now, he, he admitted to dismembering his neighbor, but he said he didn't kill him. He said it's complicated. So um, it's a very, it's an interesting series. In fact, this, the, the, ser the, the series concluded, the series, I think it's like six or seven episodes, in, in the most shocking way, more shocking than anything that I've ever seen in terms of movies or television. The ending was absolutely just stunning. Janine and I just were left in silence. Just, we just looked at each other. We didn't even know what to say. I'm not going to ruin it for you in case you, you decide to watch this, but just this uh, shocking, shocking ending to this series. Well, in one of the episodes, they, the producers interview Robert Durst's uh, current wife. So he's currently married, and I always wonder in these situations how the current wife feels about all these accusations. She may say all the right words, um, you know, pledge her undying support, but surely on the inside she has to be just terrified because all of, you know, the guys you know, allegedly killed his first wife and then his girlfriend after that and his next-door neighbor. So how could you possibly sleep comfortably next to a person who was accused of these gruesome crimes? How would you feel if you were with someone who was suspected of murdering someone uh, before you? Would you trust that person? Would you, would you sleep well at night? Would you keep one eye open at all times? How do you trust a suspected murderer? Uh, in Acts chapter 9, we're going to get to in just a moment, we're going to read, the again, the incredible conversion story of, the, of Saul, who will become the Apostle Paul. And, and just as a warning, I'm probably going to mix up, uh, I'll probably call him Saul sometimes and Paul at other times, and um, he will later be known as Paul. But we read this incredible conversion story, and, and, uh, and when Saul then goes to tell his fellow sort of siblings in Christ about what the Lord has done, how do you think they respond? Well, they don't believe him. They're terrified. This is a guy who was known to be a murderer. This is a guy who had a reputation of violence. And so they are very, very suspect of this professed 
conversion. They don't believe him. Uh, they will not let this murderer sort of out of their view, lest he do something violent against them. Now, when you, you saw the title of this message this morning, How God Deals with His Enemies, maybe this resonated with you. Maybe you thought, yes, I want to hear about what God is going to do to my enemies. I want to hear how God is going to judge my enemies and bring justice for the ways that I've been wrong. And to be sure, justice will be served. Our just God will bring judgment, and it will be real, and it will be devastating. But this morning, we're going to see that God's treatment of His enemies is actually driven by His mercy and His grace, and that's actually going to be better news for us than the promise of God's judgment. So Acts chapter 9, you know, if you've looked at it, it's 43 verses. We're not going to cover, uh, I'm not going to read every verse, um, but again, we're trying to keep the smaller scenes within the big picture of this big narrative. So let me begin by reading verses 1 and 2. Here reads the word of the Lord. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, I want to stop there because I think it's important to point out that when we think about Saul, we think about before his conversion, he was a wicked, violent, terrible, hateful, horrible person. And then after his conversion, he was a great, wonderful, obedient person and so on. But that's actually not true at all. Now, certainly, as we just read, Saul was on the hunt for Christians. And, and he wasn't content with just persecuting Christians in Jerusalem. He wanted to go as far as Damascus, which was some 150 miles roughly, so that he could sniff out and find and, and bind any followers of the way. Those who are uh, Jesus' followers were not known as Christians yet. That would be later on. Now they're known as sort of members or followers of the way. And Saul wants to find them. He wants to imprison them. And if he is permitted, he wants to kill them. But we have to consider what it was that gave Saul such passion. It wasn't because he was naturally a violent person. It wasn't because he was a hateful person. It wasn't even because he was jealous of this new movement success, Saul was actually doing these things, get this, in order to glorify God. He was doing these things because he thought that was the way to bring God glory. He thought that's what God wanted him to do. Saul saw himself as the most zealous of all people for the glory and the honor of God, hunting down those who sowed seeds of discord among God's people. But all the while, he was actually rejecting the one that God had sent, God's anointed one, the Messiah. If anybody was living for God, it was this man. Now, here's our first point this morning. It's possible to passionately, quote, live for God while even violently rejecting Jesus as Savior. Again, let's not think about Saul as this evil mastermind. He was actually the most devoted person to God around him. He says, if you may recall from our study in Philippians, he said, yeah, no, you think you're a really good person? Trust me, I'm better. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, you know, as to the law, blameless. Here's a guy who was meticulous in his law keeping, but he was an enemy of God because he rejected the person and work of Christ. In Saul's case, it wasn't sin that kept him away from Jesus. 
it was his goodness, his religious zeal. We might say what kept Saul away from Jesus was his perfect church attendance, his faithful offerings, his enthusiastic worship, his spotless obedience. He didn't need a Messiah on a cross. He had his own righteousness. I mean, he knew that sin was bad. He knew that coveting, he knew that adultery, he knew that stealing, he knew these things were bad. He knew sin was bad. But what he had to discover was that his righteousness was also bad because it had become his Savior. What Saul didn't realize is his righteousness was actually his greatest hindrance to repenting and trusting in Christ. Now, as I thought about that and as I wrote those words this week, I couldn't help but think in our culture, and more specifically, if we want to really sort of narrow in, on our particular area of the country, could this be the greatest challenge that we face? People who are relying on their, quote, church membership, a prayer they prayed, their relative goodness, their family background, whatever it is, even calling themselves Christians, but not actually trusting in Christ. A few years ago, I, had, uh, I heard two church planters have this conversation. I guess they were probably in their early, uh, mid-20s, as I recall. And one, They're both going to plant churches in different areas. One was going to plant a church in the Pacific Northwest, in Seattle specifically, beautiful area, but as you know, you know a, a very godless area in many respects. And the other young guy was going to plant a church in Dallas, Texas. So the guy, they were really arguing over who was going to have the toughest time, who had the biggest challenge. And the guy from Seattle said, no, you don't understand. Where I'm going, people don't care about God. They don't recognize God as God. They don't defer to Him. They're, they're a very godless people. Of course, he was speaking broadly. But the guy who was going to Dallas said, I think, actually, I have the harder time. Because where I'm going, it's a cool thing to be a Christian. It's a trendy thing. Everybody goes to church. Everybody calls himself or herself a Christian. And so I'm beginning with people who already think they're right with God. And I tend to believe that, frankly, the guy going to Dallas would have a harder time. I had a guy in the church a few years ago. His name was Bob. He was in his early 80s and a very kind guy. And we would always talk on Sunday mornings and we would have lunch occasionally. One day he, uh, he emailed me and asked if we could have lunch. And I said, sure. And so he dropped by, picked me up at the office and um, we were on our way to lunch. Bob was a, a guy kind of like the first guy I mentioned in the opening illustration. He was a, a guy who had um, established quite a fortune in the real estate business in Southern California. Hadn't killed anybody, so there was that difference. Um, but this was a guy who was a very well-known guy in the community. So he picks me up and, and gets in the car. And for some reason, I don't know why, Bob sort of got nostalgic all of a sudden. Very sentimental. And uh, he started to reflect on the way that God had worked and the things that God had allowed him to accomplish and, and all the things that, that had gone on. And then he said, again, really kind of out of the blue, I, I, didn't, I didn't really ask, I wasn't going in this direction, but he said, you know, I've lived a really full life and uh, I just feel like I'm ready to meet God. Well, I mean, as a pastor, I mean, that, that's a softball, right? I mean, I can't just let that one go. And so we're driving and I said, oh, really? I said, Bob, why, why do you say that? Like, why do you say, why do you say you're ready to meet God? He said, I have, he said I've, I've lived my whole life for God. I have, I have lived for God my whole life. I've done the best that I could. I've been very generous with the people around me. I've st you know, stayed out of the, some of the unethical practices that others had, had, had gotten into. And I said, Bob, I think, I mean, I'm encouraged by, by what you've just shared and the influence that you've had. But no one ever gets to heaven 
by living for God. Because the thing is, you can't possibly do enough. You can never be perfect. You can never obey enough. You can never give enough. The only way that you'll ever be ready to stand before God is by faith in Jesus and His cross work. That's the only way. And when I said that to him, this is a guy who's been in church for, I don't know, 60 years. And he looked at me like he could not even begin to grasp what I was saying. Because to him, it was all about doing the best that he could and living the best way imaginable. And I think this is the mindset of, of many, and I don't mean just around North Alabama, I mean wherever, anywhere. This idea that if I can just do my best to, quote, live for God and basically stay out of any of the major trouble areas, then that will be enough. This was certainly the mindset of Saul, who, again, who was obedient, who was a person who, who wanted to do everything he could to actually glorify God, even to the extent of seeking out the followers of Jesus and persecuting them. What Saul needed to see is that he himself needed to be rescued both from his sins and from the righteousness that he was clinging to. What Saul needed to see was that the name that he was so hot on eradicating was actually his only hope. Look at verses 3 through 9. Now, as he went on his way, this is Saul, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice and seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So on the way to Damascus, Saul encounters this figure so glorious and, and so resplendent that he literally outshines the sun. He's looking up and the light is so bright that he can't really see who it is. He hears a voice, but he can't distinguish who's speaking to him. Now, everybody else around him saw the light and they heard the voice. They fell to the ground. They all sort of collapsed. But Saul kind of gets a glimpse into the source of the light, though he can't fully distinguish the light was so bright that he didn't know who it was. Otherwise, he most certainly would have recognized Jesus. Just about every Jew in Jerusalem at that time would have recognized Jesus. Remember the scene that he caused? I mean, this is a guy who walked on water. This is a guy who turned water into wine. This is a guy who fed thousands of people with a very, very few supplies. This is a guy who was hung on a cross to bake out in the desert sun. This is a guy who uh, the rumors of his... Uh, resurrection had already circulated and had already cultivated, garnered quite a following. Saul might have actually, and I, I believe this is the case, Saul might have actually seen Jesus with his own eyes as Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem riding on a colt with palm branches being spread uh, beneath him. So Saul knew who Jesus was. He knew who Jesus was, but he didn't know Jesus. He believed in Jesus. How could he not? He'd heard all the stuff. He'd he was aware of the ruckus that Jesus had caused, but Saul had not believed that Jesus was the Christ. Saul had rejected Jesus as the only true Savior of the world until now at this very moment. Appearing to him in a blinding light, the risen Jesus asked Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Have you ever read that and thought, that's kind of an odd way to go about it? What, what does Jesus mean by that? Saul wasn't actually persecuting Jesus. Jesus was at the right hand of the Father, uh, completely safe and beyond any harm, in full glory. But in Jesus' mind, when his followers were being persecuted, Jesus himself was being persecuted. A few years ago, I was working on a graduate degree in systematic theology and bioethics, and I had to read this book. Uh, or parts of it, called On Moral Medicine, Theological Perspectives in Medical Ethics. It's as boring as you might imagine by that title. And uh, it was literally a thousand pages uh, with tiny print, and they had the audacity, had two columns on every page. You can see I'm still bitter about this. Uh, but I had to weigh my, I threw it, and, and it was filled with all kinds of medical terms. So I was asking Janine on a regular, but like, what does this word mean? What does that word mean? What is this talking about? Some of the articles I, I didn't find very helpful, but there was one that I thought was really good. It was by a guy by the name of Bradley Hansen called The School of Suffering. And what Hansen would say in that article is that there are a lot of ways that we can love our neighbor, which as Christians we've been called to do. Uh, but one of the best ways to love someone is actually to share in their suffering. And this can only be done fully by those who have experienced suffering, particularly the same kind. So someone who's lost a child, someone who suffered a miscarriage, or dealt with chronic pain, or lost a spouse, is uniquely able to identify with and help someone who is suffering in that way. Now, this is what Paul, the same guy, would talk about later in 2 Corinthians when he says that we have been comforted by God so that we can be a comfort to others. Now, it doesn't mean that if you haven't experienced the same exact sort of thing, that you can't be a help to someone, but it does mean that, that those who, have, who've, who can profoundly identify with someone in their suffering are those who are able to offer the best help. Well, Jesus can profoundly identify with us in every way that we would suffer categorically. Jesus, talk about betrayal. Maybe your situation is you've been betrayed by a husband or wife or someone that loved you and, and pledged their undying love for you. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. Jesus knows what it's like to be hungry. Jesus knows what it's like to be sick. Jesus knows what it's like to, to experience the most incredible sort of pain beyond imagination. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer emotional anguish. So in Jesus, we have a Savior who knows what it's like to suffer. And here, Jesus lets His people know by, by the way He approaches Saul that when His people are being persecuted, Jesus, quote, feels their pain, so to speak. In fact, in Jesus' mind, He is suffering Himself when his people suffer. So what does Jesus do? He overwhelms Saul with his glory and mercy. He brings Saul to repentance and saving faith. You say, how do you know that? Well, for a number of reasons. Saul will immediately recognize Jesus as Lord and call him as such. But even more clearly, when Saul would share his own testimony in, in Acts 22, he will say that he called on the name of Jesus for the washing away of his sins. And also, his faith is made evident by his actions. He immediately obeys the voice of Jesus. So what Jesus has done here, which is so shocking, which is so counterintuitive, he has taken his greatest enemy and he has made him into a worshiper, a servant, 
and his ambassador. New Testament scholar, biblical, or biblical scholar William Lane uh, Larkin writes this, This conversion is the most important event in human history apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I believe that's the case. Now, wh- why is that true? Well, one, because Saul would become Paul, who would become the greatest church planter the world has ever seen. He would go and plant churches in, out in the Mediterranean world. He would then equip other leaders who would go even further out and plant churches. He would develop leaders. He would share the gospel. He would see people come to Christ. He would be involved in revivals, all of that, all of that stuff. So for all those reasons, I think it's the greatest conversion. I mean, one of the most important events in the history of the world. But even more than that, Saul's conversion shows us the depth and the reach and the power of God's grace. If this blasphemer, if this murderer, if this guy who hated Jesus with a visceral passion could become one of Christ's followers, could be forgiven, then anyone can. Here's a critical point, and it's our second point this morning. There is no one alive that is beyond God's power to forgive, redeem, and restore. No one alive beyond God's power to forgive, redeem, and restore. Think about the words that the New Testament writers use to describe Saul, who would become Paul, and even he uses himself. He was a blasphemer. We know what God thinks about blasphemy. He was a persecutor. He was a murderer. He was an insolent opponent of Jesus and the way. He killed people. He blasphemed against the risen Christ. He was wicked and bloodthirsty in his efforts to round up and eliminate all Christians. And that's not the worst of it. You know what was even worse, You know, at least in terms of keeping himself from salvation, he was puffed up with self-righteousness. He believed the Bible. He believed, he believed the law. His conviction for the, the, uh, the trustworthiness of the Bible and the law, much greater than ours. His commitment to the scriptures and memorization, much greater than ours. He had a biblical view of sexuality and marriage. His theology was airtight. His doctrine was fully formed. And he actually practiced what he preached. And he wasn't just obedient. He was meticulous to every single aspect of the law. Have you ever heard someone say when they're really amazed by something, you know, even my goosebumps have goosebumps? Well, here the, 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 Saul is saying, I mean, for, the apostle, for Saul, rather, even his rules had rules on them. So every rule had to be interpreted a certain way and lived out a certain way, and he was meticulous in his obedience. He was the most righteous and, indeed, the most self-righteous of all people. And the risen Christ pierced through all of that. Yes, his rebellion. I mean, yes, his hatred and so on, but also through his righteousness and brought him to a place of repentance and faith. And I have to ask you the same question that I I hated to, but I had to ask myself this week. Do you see yourself in either of these categories? Either as someone who is rejecting Jesus and and living according to your own rules, or someone who's depending on your own church attendance, your own Christian family, your own giving, your own obedience, your own theology. Maybe, maybe you believe in God. Maybe you look around and you, you see the created order. You see all the beautiful things of creation. Yesterday was such a, a beautiful day. You see all this stuff and you know because of this there has to be a creator. So you 
are willing to acknowledge that there is a creator. And maybe, maybe you're even humble enough to recognize that you don't have the ability to make something out of nothing. Only God can do that. You're sure of that. But that awareness has not led you to repentance and faith, turning to Jesus. Maybe today, through the Holy Spirit, you've been confronted with the reality that the same God who created the world actually desires, actually yearns to be in relationship with you. The same God who's so powerful that He said the Word and the world was made actually longs to be in a right relationship with you. In fact, He wants to reconcile you to Himself so much that He sent His Son to be born in the likeness of human form, God in the flesh, Jesus, who would live and satisfy all the requirements of the law, dying a cruel death so that you and I could be reconciled, so that we could call on His name and be saved. There is no action, there is no offense, there is no statement, there is no crime that is beyond God's scope of forgiveness. And maybe you say, you don't know my history. Well, even if I don't, I can say this. You're not beyond the power of God's grace to forgive. God's grace is infinitely wider and more sufficient than we have ever imagined, saving even the most heinous of offenders. And maybe you're saying, yeah, this is a message that needs to be preached at the prisons. This is a message that needs to be preached at the detention homes. No, this is a message that we need to hear because we constantly defer to our own righteousness. We constantly believe in our own ability. We constantly, though we would never say it in a million years, are inclined to believe that if we just do enough, if we just can be better than the people around us, God will approve of us. I love the way that author and professor Dennis Johnson sums up this section. He says, Saul, the persecutor, is a vivid portrait embedded in real history of what each of us, pious or profligate, pious is the meticulously obedient, the person is always doing right, profligate is just a synonym for the, the, the wicked, uh, the, the degenerate, whatever. It's, it's what each of us would be apart from the Spirit of God who alone can shatter human pride so that we call on the name of the Lord. He stands as the prime example to his own day and ours of the futility of human religious effort and the surprising mercy of God. See, Saul is not only preaching an incredible message of grace, he is exhibit A of the power of God's grace. See, God doesn't just forgive Paul, oh, that would be miraculous in itself. He also uses him to extend that message of grace. So here he is, he's, he's been converted by, the, by this blinding appearance of Jesus. He can't see anything for three days, he doesn't eat or drink. And then there's this guy named Ananias who is in Damascus, just minding his own business, serving the Lord, and he's in for an unexpected visit. Look at verses 10 and following. Now, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has, been, he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, 
Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he, he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Now keep that phrase in mind as it'll, it'll become even more incredible as we work our way through the book of Acts. To carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight, and then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And, and he, has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So the same Jesus who appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus appears to Ananias and says, I want you to go and find this man named Saul. He's from Tarsus, and I want you to minister to him. And Ananias replies, uh, wait a second, Lord. Like, I, I, I know about this guy. Like, I've heard about this guy. I know what happens. I know what he's done. I've heard of Stephen. I know what happened to Stephen. Are you asking me to go find him so the same thing can happen to me that happened to Stephen? And God said, look, I want you to go. I've already given Saul a vision of a man named Ananias coming to lay hands on him and praying for him. He's my chosen instrument to carry my name to the Gentiles. Now think about that. Of every person ever born, this is the guy that God chooses to be his instrument to, to all the world? Now we would see it will involve suffering. It will involve uh, Paul going through all kinds of turmoil and shipwreck and imprisonment and beatings and so on, and it would involve him taking a very creative approach to win people to Christ, but he would go out preaching Christ. This was the sum and substance of his message, of his preaching. He would have to duck and dodge those who wanted to kill him. He would, he would comfort the other disciples who had a, a really hard time believing that he was legit, and he would use any number of means and approaches to point people to Jesus, and God would allow him to bear much spiritual fruit. We can probably say, in terms of multiplication, beyond any person who's ever lived. That brings us to our final point this morning. God transforms His enemies into His beloved children, whom He uses in powerful and unexpected ways for His glory. And is this not the pattern of Scripture? Look at the people that God has determined to use. Abraham was an idol worshiper and a liar and a coward, and God would use him to be the father of Israel. I mean, look at David. David, yes, he was a great warrior, but he was also a guy who was an adulterer. He was a guy who sent out Uriah to be killed, who orchestrated the murder of an innocent man, and God would use him to pen most of the Psalms that we have in the Scriptures. Think about Peter. You, you remember when Jesus was teaching how 
he would really harp on this idea of not denying him. And yet here's Peter who would deny him in spectacular fashion and yet be really the first among equals of the disciples. God takes those who were his enemies and he brings them to saving faith, to repentance, and then he uses them in ways they never dreamed or in ways they never expected. And maybe this morning you think, yeah, but I'm really, I don't really know that I can be used by God because of what I've done. You may think that you've been through too much, you, you, you've done too much, you've just made one too many bad decisions. Maybe you think, I don't have the training, I don't have the education, I don't have the skill set. Well, God will use you if you belong to Him, and in fact, God is already using you. He's using you right now. He's using you and your family in a way you don't even realize. He's using you in ways that around the people that you come in contact with. I mean, all we're doing is we're, we're just casting the seed. God is the one who's tilling up the dirt. He's the one who's smashing the boulders. He's the one who's clearing away the rocks. He's the one who causes things to grow. But He's using His people. He's using you this morning for His good, for His glory, and for the benefit of those you come in contact with. Now remember, the title of this sermon is How God Deals with His Enemies. And it is true that a time is coming, and maybe even soon, when the Lord Jesus will destroy those enemies who rally against Him, those who persist in their stubborn rebellion against the Lord Jesus will be brought low. All those who continue in hostility will be soundly defeated, and there won't be any question as to who is the Lord of the universe. And those, and, and those who have hurt you, those who have betrayed you, those who have abandoned you, those who have wronged you, will have to answer for what they've done. Second Thessalonians says this, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted. So the time is coming when God will repay everyone who has wronged you. But right now, God is conquering His enemies in a very, very different way, in a way we would never ex expect, and a way, if we're honest, we might not really even want. At this present time, God is condemning His enemies to death for their sin. But he's putting the punishment that they deserve on Jesus on the cross, and he's raising them in faith to behold his glory and to testify to his grace. You say, I don't want my enemies to come to saving faith. I don't want them to repent. Well, we have to remember where we were when God brought his grace down to us. You may think, well, this is not what I want to happen. I don't want to see those who have hurt me restored. I don't want to see those who have wronged me in so many ways, brought to repentant faith. But it becomes really our greatest comfort when we look beyond ourselves, when we realize when we, when we, we were afar off, we were deserving of God's wrath. We should have been set aside, put away from God's view forever because of our rebellion, because of our sinfulness, because of our self-reliance. And we have seen the consequences that we deserve meted out on the cross to Jesus Christ so that we could be declared right before God. And now we are called to bear witness to that grace. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy sailing. 
doesn't mean we won't suffer. We will suffer. It will, we will go down, as we're going to sing in just a moment, this path of sorrow. There will be highs and there will be lows. And there will be moments when we don't feel like we're being used by God for anything. But even amid our failures, amid our trials, even when we suffer, we go through sorrow, we serve a Savior who is with us, who can empathize with us, who feels our pain, so to speak, who has made it so that we could be forgiven, and who will continue to use us in ways we may not realize until many years from now or even until we are with Christ in glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, comfort us with your words today. Help us to understand anew the power and the sufficiency and the breadth of your grace, of your gospel, not just in our own lives, in our own hearts, but all around the world to the distant nations. Help us to believe this morning that you have our good in mind, even as we may go down a path of sorrow, even as we may deal with uncertainty. Lord, you are faithful and you never change. Though we are up and down and we are all over the map, we are fickle and unreliable, you, God, never change. And we pray that you would comfort us with that truth of your character today. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.